right, good morning. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. I want you to take your Bible or your iPhone or whatever device you're using and open it to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Caitlin Patterson's going to be our reader this morning. So, Caitlin, if you'll come up here and uh, you'll grab this mic over here. And um, while she's coming, we, let's give a hand to all of our first-time guests this morning. we got a handful this morning. Very glad that they're here. So we're going to talk about this morning, as we read through Deuteronomy 17, Moses is going to spell out for us what it takes to make a just society. So keep that in mind as Caitlin reads for us this morning. Go ahead. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish and defect whatever, for that it is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you with any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you. A man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God is transgression his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun of the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden. And it is told you and you hear of it. Then you shall inquire diligently and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel. Then you shall bring it out to your gates, that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone the man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. If any case arises requiring decisions between one kind of homicide and another one, kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and, and another, and case within your, your towns that it is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to them, Levit Levitical priests, and to the judge who is in the office in those days. And you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that you direct you, that they direct you. According to the instructions that they give you and according to the decisions which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge that man shall die. You shall purge the evil from Israel, and all of the people shall hear and fear and act, and not act presumptuously against. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and they say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself 
excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall not write himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. By keeping all the words of his law, of this law, and these statutes, and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Good job, Caitlin. Give her a hand. All right. Thank the Lord for his word this morning. Okay, so there, there was an Aggie driving back to College Station. He's in, you're laughing already. See, that's how good these jokes are. I don't have to just start. And he's driving back to College Station, and he's really not paying attention. He comes up all, alongside of a motorcycle gang, and he inadvertently cuts some of them off. Well, that outraged them, and so they circle his car, and they force him off the road. And they go up, and they pound on his window, and they drag him out of the car. And like, man, who do you think you are? cutting us off and they're using all kinds of creative words as you can imagine and they're just like just furious at him and he's like oh I didn't know I didn't know and they're like you know what you come over here you stand in this circle and they drew a chalk circle on the highway right there and you see you stand right here and we're going to show you what we think of your car and you cutting us off and so and then it says if you if you even step out of that circle for even a second we're going to take it out on you instead of out on your car. So he's standing there in a circle, and the guy goes over with a baseball bat and just smashes his windshield and his windows. And he said, yeah, what do you think about that? And the, and the Aggie just starts laughing and snickering and just going and can't hold him, contain himself laughing. Like, man, what is wrong with you? Oh, yeah, what do you think of that? So they take a knife, and they start slashing his tires. And they look at him and say, so now what do you think of your car? And he just, <laughs> he just starts laughing and they have a good time. And then they're like, man, you are crazy. So they said, here, watch this. And they drop a match on his engine and boom, it blows up and it's burning. So now what do you think of your car? And he is laughing hysterically. And they're like, what is wrong with you? Are you mental or what? And they, what, what are you laughing about? And he goes, when you weren't looking, I stepped out of this circle three times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the point of that joke is, Sometimes we get so focused on the rules, we forget the big picture. And that, that's what happened to this guy right here. And, and sometimes we can do that with Deuteronomy. We get so focused on the rules and think, man, what a strange book. You know, like this chapter we just read, that, that's kind of tough, right? And if we, sometimes we get so focused on the rules, we forget the big picture. And, of course, the big picture in every scripture of the Bible is Jesus. It's all about Jesus and his love for us. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 17 this morning. And I, I have three points for you in here that are from this chapter. Number one, God alone is to be worshipped properly. God alone is to be worshipped properly. And then the second thing this chapter tells us is the Levites are to, just, are to judge justly. Levites are to judge justly. And the third thing we'll see is that kings are to rule righteously. Kings rule righteously. So let's start with the first one here. God alone is to be worshipped properly. He said, you shall not sacrifice the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect. So a blemish would be something on the surface that, that shows you that there's a sickness going on. Okay, just like in human beings, leprosy is a sign of, some, of, of an internal infection. A blemish on animals shows something internally wrong manifesting on the outside. Or defect would be like if a sheep was missing an ear or one-legged or missing an eye. 
You know, it's not sick, but it is deformed. So no, no sick animals, no deformed animals. And why is that? Because God deserves our very best. And it's more importantly, it's not just about our sacrifice to God and giving him the best, but it's what that sacrifice represents. It represents Jesus. Every time they sacrificed a lamb, they were supposed to remember that the lamb that was to come, he's perfect. He is without sin. He's without blemish or defect. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. And so the sacrifice represented that. So to sacrifice, think about you're a farmer and the times are kind of tough and you're not making a lot of money. And here is your best lamb. Man, he would be a great stud. He's the future of your herd and of your flock. And so you're thinking... But if I give that to God, man, I'm really, that's, that, he's worth $3,000 in, in today's money. And how can I give that to God? That's going to really mess me up financially down the road. Well, that's where number one, trust comes in. But number two, you realize God's worth it, that we give him our very best. But number three, as I sacrifice it, I remember that he who spared not his son, but gave, us, gave him up for us all. How shall you not freely give us all things? If God gave his very best for us, I need to give my very best to God. And it says that, that, that God hates that. It's abomination means think of something that just totally makes you go, oh, that's sickening. That's gross. That's the way it is to God. When we give our second best to God, when we give him what's left instead of what's right, and we just give God leftovers. We, we shouldn't do that to God. Um, I remember one time my son Lance, who's now 29, uh, I was driving through McDonald's for him because we love good health food, you know. And kids, for some reason, have this obsession with McDonald's. Uh, the McDonald's chicken nuggets, I mean, have you tasted them? Without the sauce, you're like, what is this? I mean, what, this is, they, some people joke around being kangaroo meat. It's not even good enough to be kangaroo meat. It is, uh, I don't even think it's meat. I think, I, I'm no, anyway, but kids want McDonald's. They want the Happy Meal. So I'm going to give Isaiah, Lance, I always do a Freudian slip. I give him what he wants. And so I, I give him the Happy Meal and all that stuff like that. And so we pull over and we're going to sit and eat. I say, hey, can I be one of your french fries? He goes, no, they're mine. I'm like, wait a minute. Who bought you that Happy Meal? You did. Who gave you the clothes that you're wearing right now? You did. And, and, and who's going to spank you if you don't give you one of those french fries? <laughs> you know, it's funny that we look at that and say, man, how could a kid even do that to their dad? And yet we do it to God all the time. The Bible says that the tenth, the tithe, belongs to the Lord. In fact, if you want to be technical about it, we don't give our tithe. We return our tithe. It's God's to begin with. Anything we give above that is an offering. But God deserves our very best. Amen? God deserves the best of your talents, your time, everything you know. He, he deserves the very best. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be what? grateful. This is all about gratitude. Let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Acceptable worship is giving God our very best. And why do we give him our best? Because we are grateful. Because we're grateful people. And we're supposed to do that with reverence and awe. Uh, back in 2012, a lady named Debbie Stevens, the one uh, with her hand to her nose crying there, um, her boss, the other lady in the picture, had cancer and needed a kidney transplant. Well, Debbie stepped up to donate one of her kidneys to her boss. And actually, technically, 
She wasn't an exact match, but what she did was she donated to someone else who donated to someone else who donated to her boss. So she started a domino effect to still make it indirectly possible. So her donating her kidney saved her boss's life. Well, donating a kidney is not as easy as it sounds. Sometimes there's a recovery, always there's a recovery time, and sometimes there's even complications, which is what Debbie had. Debbie got sick, there was an infection, she started having respiratory problems, she had all kinds of issues, and so she came back for a walk for a while, but then she'd be sick and she'd have to take off for a while. And then when she came back, her doctor said she needs certain um, accommodations. She needs to go to the bathroom often, she needs to be able to stand up at her desk, not sit the whole time, and things like that. And... Believe it or not, the workplace, including her boss, gave her a hard time about these accommodations. And six months after she came back, she got fired. Isn't that not crazy? You think, where is the gratitude in that? And yet God gave more than a kidney for us. He gave his life. And yet sometimes I think we fire God and say, you're not in control of my life anymore. I'm in control of my life. I'm going to call the shots. I'm going to make my decisions of what, what I'm going to be, what I grow up, what I'm going to do for a career, who I'm going to marry, who I'm going to date. We make all these decisions on our own, and we fire God, the one who gave everything for us. See, we, God deserves our very best worship. And in the New Testament, there's five acts of worship. Somebody name me one. Five things you see in the New Testament are ways we worship God. Somebody tell me one. Praise. We sing to God. We just did a good job of that. Uh, you guys did a great job singing along with them. What else do we do? We give to the Lord. What else do we do? We pray. Great. Serve is service. I don't Some people count that as worship, and it can be. For the, this purpose is here as far as the New Testament church. I'm not going to count it in this list, but I, I can go with that. What else? Yeah, the proclamation of God's word, the preaching, and then the giving, and then following the Lord's Supper. So these are the five formal acts of worship. Some people separate service from worship. Again, it, it, it's, it could be semantics. But these are things that we should definitely do every Sunday and when we're in the Lord's house because he deserves the best. And in Hebrews, it also says, through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And he says, in case you don't know what I'm talking about, that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but when I was first in the ministry in my 20s and even partly into my 30s, I would kind of just sit there and endure the music service. Number one, because I couldn't sing, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. But number two, it just seemed like, I don't know, I just wasn't into it. And you know what I've noticed is broken people praise the Lord. <laughs> and it wasn't until I was broken that now I can't help but sing. And, and if you have to sit near me, so what? I mean, just put up with it because, you know, you might not want to sit near me, but Tammy has to put up with it. But I'm going to sing anyway. I'm just going to praise the Lord because of what he's done. And, and he deserves it, but it's an offering, and it's the fruit. And, he, you know, several offerings weren't always animals. Sometimes there was the wave offering, which was grain, but there was also the fruit offering, the first fruits and instead of bringing a basket of fruit to God, God says, hey, why don't you sing me a song? Isn't that cool? He wants us to sing a song. And we owe it to him. He's worthy of it. And we're supposed to do that. So let me just challenge those of you who sit there doing service like I used to do, kind of like, oh, this is boring. I don't get into this. Maybe if it's even not your favorite song, if you'll focus on the words on that screen and think, wait a minute, my Savior is worthy of this. 
He's worthy to be praised. And, and we're very careful around here to make sure the songs we sing are scriptural, so you don't have to wonder about whether it's right or not to be sung. But we, he, we owe him the fruit of our lips. So let me offer a challenge this morning, okay? I, I, one of the, my favorite parts, and I've shared this with Nathan, and I've shared it with Chauncey, and I've shared it with anybody who's led worship with us, one of my favorite parts of Sunday morning is hearing y'all sing. You know, have you ever noticed, like, sometimes, like, Chris Cobb is real good about it. He'll be singing, and then he'll step back from the mic, and you can just hear the congregation sing. And, you know, that's biblical. It, it says in Colossians 3, we're supposed to admonish one another in song, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, teaching one another. Did you know that we are learning the gospel as we hear each other sing? That's biblical. That we are singing about it, and it's sinking in. You know, you can memorize all kinds of stuff. But when you put it to song, it's like, boom, like that. Like trying to teach a, a three-year-old how to spell orange. That's the weirdest way of spelling it. Orange, A-R, no, O-R. Orange, okay. And then G is G. No, in this case, it's G. All these naughty letters, right, preschool teachers. And so, but when you sing the song, Tammy, I can't sing it. I was going to have you sing it. But uh, there's a song that Tammy teaches the kids how to spell orange. And they walk around. And so, uh, our grandkids, it's he's homeschooling. They walk around the house singing O R A N G spells orange, and they go through that whole thing. And you, when you set something to music, you memorize it like that. Do you think God's trying to teach us something? That it's interesting to go through the day with a song on your heart that's not country music, okay? But it's about Jesus. That's about the gospel. About how much He loves us. That's why he does it for a purpose. So, so here's your challenge, okay? And again, you already do a good job with this, but I really want us to step up, okay? So here's the challenge. To sing even more enthusiastically than ever before in worship, Revolution Church. That's what I want us to do. Amen? Are you all on board with that? So we're going to get a chance to practice this at the end of the message. They're going to come up and sing. And I, I don't care if you think you can sing or not. I just, if all of us sing loud enough, nobody will hear anybody, okay? Except we'll hear everybody. And so sing out loud at the end of the service day, okay? And we're going to just make that part of our DNA as a church, that we're just loud singers for better or for worse, okay? Verse 2 says, if there is found among you with any in your towns, and this again, they're on the verge of going into the promised land. He says, once you get in there, Here's what I want you to do. Be really careful that anybody in your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman, doesn't matter, who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and transgressing his covenant. And what does that mean, that evil? Well, look what he, he says here. He says, and has gone and served the other gods and worshiped them. Now, we look at that and say, we live in a very pluralistic society where, you know, there's Muslims, there's Buddhists, there's Christians, there's atheists, there's all kinds of stuff. And we just, we all get along and we tolerate one another and we coexist. And that's fine. But that's not what this situation was. This was a nation who had been at war. And part of the war was over whose God is, is true. And they were, they were expelling this nation who were killing babies by the thousands. They were worshiping Baal, and they would take their babies and they throw them in a fire. Okay, they would rape underage children left and right. It was part of their culture. It was an evil culture, and God says, "Go destroy them all." And then once you get in there, if anybody of Israel says, "Hey, that Canaanite worship was kind of cool. I think I'll do that," which means let's go kill some babies or let's go kill some other abuse other people. That's why the death penalty was involved in this. So when you read the Bible, don't sit there and let all your skeptical glasses criticize God. 
Give God the benefit of the doubt that he knows what he's talking about. And if you were in that culture, this was definitely the right thing to do. In the next verse says, let's see here. Verse 4 says, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. We're not going on gossip here. We're not going on hearsay. If you hear that so-and-so was involved in pagan worship and they were doing this abusive behavior, you need to do a thorough investigation. This was a very serious matter, not something to be taken lightly. And it says, and then you shall bring out to your gates. The gates were like the city hall of the town. It was where the authority was. Remember, the elders sat in the gate. It was basically the town hall, the courtroom, everything. Then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing. And you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Man, this was serious. And again, we could sit there and look at it and say, man, that just seems so barbaric and all, everything, all these other things. But again, put, t- put yourself in 3,000 years ago what the culture was then. There's no police. The, the, the society policed themselves. They took care of this and they were the law. And God took this very seriously. And this type of death penalty was definitely something that was intense. And he says, and on the evidence of two or three witnesses, you will see that as a theme all throughout the Bible. That God confirms things with two or three witnesses. In fact, Jesus confirmed his ministry. He said, you know, the Father and the Spirit were his ministry as evidenced by the miracles and the signs that he did. That even Jesus was confirming the fact of who he was by two or three witnesses. But you can't just say, I saw her doing this. No, you didn't. And it's not, it's his word versus her word, you know. There's not that. There has to be two or even three witnesses in an ideal situation. You know what? There's people on death row in America today on the, on the evidence of one witness. And then we found out that the DNA was wrong. We just executed an innocent man. If, if we would just follow what the Bible says, someone, two or three people saw it, or at least not just circumstantial evidence, but something corroborating where there's two or three witnesses of the evidence itself. But it says there's two or three witnesses. The one who is to die shall be put to death. And then uh, does that sound familiar though? He says, at the hand of the witnesses shall first against him be put to death. So you two guys are making the accusations. You two guys throw the first stones. Oh, well, well I'm not really sure I saw it or not. Uh, I don't know if I want to do this. It's like, you better be serious about your accusation. So, and, and again, does this sound familiar? Do you remember a woman was taken in adultery? And the weird thing was, it takes two to commit adultery, okay? But they just bring the woman, which shows what a chauvinistic society they were. And Jesus was saying, hey, women aren't just property. They're not property at all. They're, they're equal to us. And so he gives her equal treatment that they wouldn't. And he's like, you know, where's the other witnesses? And again, that's me reading into the passage. But he's implying that when he says, well, hey, let any of you that are without sin, you get to cast the first stone. Since you all think you're so self-righteous and she's, you know, you're below you. And what's fascinating about that passage is it said, from, starting with the oldest, the people with the most life experience, the people who were the most compassionate, the people who were supposed to be the wisest, the people who probably did what she had done, start dropping the stones and walking away. And you hear thud, 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 thud. And she's down, face down on the ground, trembling, thinking any minute now a rock's going to be pounding her in the head. And all of a sudden there's silence. And Jesus says, 
um, where are your accusers? There's none, Lord. And he says, neither do I accuse you. Now, this was not Jesus condoning sin. Because while he shows compassion and mercy on her, then his next words are, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you for being an adulterer, adulteress. I don't condemn you for your lifestyle. I don't know, and I, me personally speaking now, I don't know what all of her lifestyle was if this was, she was a prostitute. We don't know. But whatever it was, Jesus showed compassion on her. And you may be here this morning saying, you know, I would like to be a Christian, but man, I've done so many bad things. God could never forgive me. No, not true. God forgives the most evil of sinners, which really all of us really are. We're just picking and choosing our own sin. But he picks her up and he loves her and sends her on her way and her life is changed. But it's interesting that talking about the two or three witnesses, he, he uses that on this, in this situation where in the Old Testament, they were justified in doing what they did. But Jesus is saying, hey, but let's also show compassion. And he brings the balance to the law. He was full of grace and truth. Verse 7 says, the hand of the witnesses shall be the first. But then watch this. Once the first two or three witnesses start throwing the stones, everybody had to be involved. So there was also this check and balance there. Wait a minute. Before you two or three throw it, I'm not sure I want to throw one. Are you guys sure this is true? Are you, you guys done a thorough investigation? They took the, the, the penal system very seriously. It wasn't something willy-nilly. And you say, okay, that still sounds brutal. Think about where they were living. Back then, the golden rule was whoever has the gold makes the rules. If you were rich, you, if somebody looked at you wrong, you'd kill them. Who would stop you? You had your own army. You could do whatever you want. Men would just randomly sexually assault women as they wanted because that was the culture. That was very much part of the Greek culture, the Roman culture, the Babylonian culture. Men were on top. Young men were second. Older women were next. And, and it was a pecking order. And you could do whatever you want to anybody and say, Who, stop me, bring it. And so families would go to war against family. You'd have these families feud. Like, you, you, you abused my daughter, so we're going to go to war to you. And, and if you didn't have enough to be stronger than the, the abuser's family, you're like, well, we just have to take it. And that's the way the society was. It was very brutal. And Moses brings some civility into the culture and the situation. So God alone is to be worshipped properly. But also, number two, Levites are to judge justly. Levites are to judge justly. He says, if there's any case requiring a decision between one kind of homicide and another. Do you know, up to this point, murder was murder. But Moses, through the Holy Spirit of God, says, you know what? There's different types of murder. There's premeditated murder, and there, there is accidental, like, oh, man, we were just working together in the field, and I swung the shovel, and oh, man, didn't see you there, and you killed a guy. And so they, Moses says, hey, you know what? The guy who accidentally killed somebody doesn't deserve the same punishment as the guy who's been premeditating this for weeks and just totally brutalized this guy. And, and you know, up until then, there was no such thing. It was the Bible that brought this to civilization. In fact, our modern law code to this day is based on Exodus and Leviticus. The way that we have uh, manslaughter, that we have um, uh, malice with forethought, involuntary manslaughter, all these different degrees all come from the word of God. And yet we're getting away from our roots and realizing that our society was based on the word of God. And, and so we got one side of, of homicide versus another, one side of one kind of assault versus another. And then he says, in any case within your towns, if it's too difficult for you. Now, don't miss that there. He's saying, 
if there's a murder situation, you guys handle it. Get your families together, get the town together, and figure this out. Do a thorough investigation, and you handle it. But if it's too difficult for you, like you still don't know what, who's right, who's guilty, who's innocent, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose, which later we tell them will be the temple and the tabernacle. Um, he says, then you can bring these cases before the authorities. But they were actually meant to handle these things themselves. And there's a parallel from that Old Testament passage to where we are in the New Testament church. 1 Corinthians 6 says, when, you, when one of you has a grievance against another, let's say, you know, someone in our church is a contractor, and you hire them to come over and do some work on your house, and then they do the job, and then you don't pay them. You're like, hey, man, what gives? And then it starts to be this problem. And the Bible says, you don't take them to court. You take them before your church. This is not Gary's opinion. This is the Bible. And you can say, well, Gary, that's Old Testament. No, no, I'm reading out of the New Testament. And yet, when's the last time you've seen this happen in a church? But yet, even today in America, we've got Christians suing Christians. And the Bible makes it very clear that, that if you have a grievance against another, how do you dare go to law before an unsaved or unrighteous judge instead of before the family of God, the saints? Listen to what he goes on to say. This is fascinating. He said, skipping down to verse 4, he says, So if you have such, a ca such cases, why do you lay them, those cases before those who have no standing in the church? You're going before a judge who maybe not even believe in God, and here you're two believers who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, and you're asking an unsaved person to make a decision for you. He's like, how dare you do that kind of thing? Listen to what else he, Paul says. He says, I say to you, this to your shame. You should be embarrassed by this. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? And you know what's interesting about this? It even says later that you don't even have to take it before your pastor or the elders or whatever. You actually could get together a group of people like a jury within your church. And it's like, what churches do this nowadays? It's, it, show, it shows how much we are steeped in tradition versus what the New Testament says we ought to do. Now, thankfully, I don't know of any cases like this in our church, but th this is letting you know if this ever happened, get together with some other believers. What does Matthew 18 say? If you have a problem with somebody, what do you do? You go talk it over between you and them alone. Nobody else. You don't gossip about it. You don't go straight to the pastor or the elders. You, you go straight to them and say, hey, man, let's go back to the illustration. You, I did this work for you three weeks ago, and I really, I got to support my family. You need to pay me. And you know, we're both Christians. You need to do what's right. If they don't hear you, what does Matthew 18 go on to say? You go get another brother and you say, hey, you know, we're, the two of us are now confronting about this. This is now six weeks. And then you take it before the church. But it, it, it's a process that if we will do what God says and we will trust him, it'll solve itself. Actually, um, so you shall come before the Levitical priest and to the judge. Now, I try to study on this and it's not really clear as best I could tell, when it says Levitical priest and the judge, the judge is not another person separate from the Levitical priesthood. He's the guy whose duty that month was to be the judge. Does that make sense? Levitical priests were the ones who assist, assisted in the temple, and they would actually cast lots for duty. Okay, this month you're in charge of incense. This month you're in charge of sacrifice animals. This month you're in charge of cleaning. And this month you're in charge of being the judge. So any cases that come here, you're the judge this month. So it was a Levitical priest, not necessarily a separate person. Um, and it says, and you, you shall be careful to do all that they direct you. In other words, once you go away, if the judge says, okay, here, here's what I've decided. You accidentally killed his cow. 
You need to give him two of yours. Case closed. You go do exactly that. You don't say, oh, well, I don't think it's fair, two for one, or whatever it may be. You follow what he says. Because they realized without police, without a militia, without anything that stuff, it's people ruling people. And again, I'm not saying we need to apply this to today. This was under theocracy 3,000 years ago under, un, under the book of Deuteronomy and Moses and this government here. But what the principle here is, is what's called the rule of law. That if everybody respects the law, we all get along. Instead of saying, well, you need to respect me because I have more money than you. Or you need to respect me because if not, I'm going to punch you in the face. Or you need to respect me because I'm going to, whatever may be. You see, and if we just say, no, you know, we're going to respect one another because that's what the law says. And in this case, it's, and God gave the law. And see, if America would realize how much of our laws used to be based on the word of God, we would respect our laws more and say, well, that's just because you made that law. I'm not respecting that law. And so what we're seeing is our, as our nation gets farther and farther away from the word of God, we're, we're getting more into anarchy. I don't have to obey that law because I don't like that law. And so, and there are bad laws. There are some very bad laws, but it's because we've gotten away from the word of God. We're seeing all kinds of crazy stuff happen. Uh, JFK said, certain other societies may respect the rule of force. We respect the rule of law. And even in, this, even in other countries in the world today, the people who are more powerful, more influential, they've got one set of rules. And if you're poor, good luck. You may, not even, you may end up in jail and be totally innocent. And even in America, you see that. If you can lawyer up and you can afford the best lawyer, you'll probably get off. And if you're poor and you get a court-appointed attorney, good luck. You may go to jail even though you're innocent. It's really messed up. But we have to respect the rule of law. And if we all did that, there would be more fairness. Even we saw last week, we've got a guy who's serving his country saying, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? And one police officer abusing the law. If he had respected the law, Instead of getting on his ego trip and macing this guy and pepper spray him in the face, you know, all this stuff. And then demanding gets out of his car when he's done nothing wrong. But we see these abuses. So if you've got police, some police, not all, not, abu- not respecting the rule of law, and then you've got people not respecting the rule of law, what happens to America? It falls apart. And so what Moses is saying here is whatever the Levitical priest says, even if you don't agree with the decision, you respect the rule of law. So God alone is to be worshipped and worshipped properly. That's the beginning of society. If we don't fear God, what does the rest matter? And then once we we respect God and his laws, we're supposed to respect those in authority over us when they decree justly. And then that brings us to our third point. Kings are to rule righteously. Kings rule righteously. He says, and when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in the land, and then say... Now, notice he's quoting them. Here's what's going to happen, people. You're going to get in the land. You're going to get comfortable. And you're going to say, hey, we want a king. I want a king. And he's, he's personifying Israel as a person saying, I will set a king over me. Notice it's not God setting a king over them. Who's supposed to be their king? God is. But Moses goes, but I know you guys. <laughs> when you get in there in houses you didn't build, in vineyards you didn't plant, and you take over cattle that you didn't even raise up, You're going to be like, look at us. We're awesome. Hey, you know what? All these other countries, they got kings. We want a king. We want a king. We think that's cool. I don't understand what's cool about it. Like like some people in America follow the British royalty. Why? (laughs) Number one, it's not our country. Number two, they're fake. They don't have any real say-so. 
Number three, they're just full of all their own drama. It's like if you like watching a soap opera, I guess you should follow British royalty. Other than that, it's like, ah, ugh. I don't like it. But Israel, for some reason, wants to have a king like everybody else. He says, and they want to be like all the other nations around them. Man, you, you really need to be careful. This is not just advice for teenagers. Adults do this too. When you want to be like all the other people around you, you're, you're in trouble. You should be aiming to please God. What does God want me to do? What kind of house does God want me to have? Oh, no, I need to have a house like she does. Honey, all my friends drive a big black SUV. Well, all my buddies, they got a, a man cave in the garage. Well, all my friends, they make six figures. Pfft, who cares about what everybody else is doing? You do what pleases God. But Israel, was they're like it too. Oh, we want to be like all the other nations around us. And again, peer pressure seems to be a lifelong problem. Verse 15 says, you may indeed set a king over whom you... So God's basically saying, okay, because I know you're going to do it anyway. Here's what you should do. He said, the Lord, your God will choose. If you're going to choose a king, or you're going to have a king, let me at least be the one to choose it. Again, God is setting up plan B because he knows they're going to do it anyway. Isn't that what happened with the issue of divorce? They were like, well... Can't we divorce, they asked Jesus, can't we divorce a woman for pretty much any reason? And he said, no, 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 that's the way, not the way it was from the beginning. He said, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, gave rules for divorce. He said, because I know you're going to do it anyway, at least do it under these guidelines. But I hate divorce, just to be on the record, I'm paraphrasing Jesus here. But here's the same thing. I, God said, I don't want to be your king, but I know how hard your heart is. So if you're going to pay, get a king, at least let me choose it. And it says, one from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreign over you. Did you know that's in the United States Constitution? That you have to be born here to be the president of the United States. That's common sense and it's based on the Bible. Why is that? Because if, if you were born in, let's say, Germany, and then you wanted to be the president of the United States, but then the U.S. has a conflict with Germany, and we have to go to war with them again, you're the president. You're like, wait a minute, but my grandma lives there. And you're like, oh, I don't know, there's kind of a conflict of interest here. Exactly. That's why we want people who are born in this country to be president. And that's what God said right here, that you don't put a foreigner over in that situation. There's so much common sense. And again, this is thousands of years ahead of its time. And there's even countries today that still don't practice this. But watch this. Let's look at the, what the kings were required. Caitlin read the verses earlier. I'm not going to go through them all again. But basically, so the kings weren't supposed to accumulate a whole bunch of horses. Okay. They were not supposed to for sure accumulate a bunch of wives. One was plenty, but they didn't understand that. They weren't supposed to accumulate a whole bunch of wealth. And you know, did you know that it's interesting in the United States, our president versus any other country's prime minister, president, king, or whatever, probably makes the least of all countries because we base it on the Bible that the president's not supposed to get rich to do this job. In fact, many presidents actually go backward financially to take the presidency. Because it's not a job to get rich. Otherwise, again, it would be a conflict of interest. But, and then also, this is fascinating. They said every king was supposed to open up the Torah, the five first books of the, of the Old Testament, and handwrite the entire books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, by hand, write the whole thing. And then they had a, Le, a Levit Levitical priest examine it to make sure he copied it accurately. And then he was supposed to read it every single day so that he would know how to judge the people. Wow. What's fascinating about that is nowhere in the Bible do you ever see until uh, Hezekiah returns and brings the Bible back that they actually read the scriptures and did what it said. But this is what God said that if you want to be the best king ever, 
make your own little copy of the Torah and you read it every single day. And then the next thing it says, you're supposed to be humble. How did, how did these guys do on this situation? Well, let's look at them. Um, we know, right? Saul, fail, 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 fail. Saul had thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of horses. He had almost as many wives. Okay, and you think, well, why did he have so many wives? Number one, was it, was it an immorality problem? That was part of it. But if you had a neighboring culture nearby your country, and you want to make a peace treaty with them, what you would do is you'd marry one of their daughters. And then you might exchange, like give them one of your sons or something like that. And so then you'd have this wife, and you'd be making babies with her, and they would think, well, we don't want to attack them. Our grandkids live there. So it was a common practice then. It was a wrong practice. Uh, it wasn't, um, the end doesn't justify the means, is what I'm trying to say. And so Saul went along with everybody else and married all these women to be politically correct and socially acceptable with all the other countries, and he failed. And he definitely was not humble. And David, same thing. He failed in all these categories. Now, was he humble? At times. Uh, he wrote Psalm 51 where he was very humble when he repented about his sin. So at times, so maybe we'll give him the benefit of doubt on the humility character, characteristic. But again, it was very inconsistent. Solomon, his son, failed worse than his dad and worse than Saul before them. He, he accumulated more than all. He was one of the wealthiest people that the world has ever known. And so he failed. And then you take all the other kings together, which were there are 40 of them in total, and they all failed. Again, there was a couple of them that two out of all the others, especially from the southern kingdom, that were, were humble and did bring revival back to the country. But as a whole, they failed miserably. But then Jesus comes on the scene, and he doesn't have a single horse. And when he's riding in on his triumphant entry, they're like, why don't you ride on a horse like all the other kings? Like, no, 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 I'll take a donkey. How powerful does that look? You're riding on a donkey. But yet Jesus chose that on purpose. So he showed, I'm not, not only am I not going to have too many horses, I'm not going to have any horses. How about wives? He said, not only am I not going to only have one, I'm going to have none on the human scale. My bride is going to be the church. I'm here to die and, to, and to, to marry the church, the body of believers. How about the wealth criteria? He didn't have any wealth. He told one follower, foxes have holes and birds have nests. The son of man, talking about himself, doesn't even have a place, a pillow to put his head on at night. He chose poverty. How about the law? He quoted it all the time. And did he write a copy of it? Yes, he wrote the whole Bible. Okay, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, inspired the word of God. He lived the word of God. He read it every day. He did more than every king was required to do. And how about being humble? Philippians 2 says that we are supposed to have the mind of Christ who humbled himself and thought equality with God was not something to be grasped, but he took on the form of a servant and he died to death on a cross, died, uh, the, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. You see, the cross was the most humiliating thing anybody could ever experience. And Jesus wasn't a victim of the cross. He chose the cross. He humbled himself. See, that's why the Bible says over and over again, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. But you know what we do? We lift ourselves up and God humbles us and knocks us down. Jesus chose humility. He chose the most humble way you could ever live and the most humble way anyone could ever die. You see, you know what Deuteronomy 17 is about? How people stink and fail at governing themselves. 
You're supposed to judge justly. You guys are abusing the law. You're supposed to set up a king that's honorable. You can't even do that. All of your kings fail repeatedly. And Jesus is showing us that he is the ultimate king. You see, notice this here. God, the lawgiver, God, the one speaking through Moses, is alone to be worshipped. The Levites are supposed to be God's instruments to judge. Kings are supposed to be God's instruments to do righteously. But watch this. They failed at, at worshiping God properly. They are always gone astray. They failed at judging justly. They were very unequitable, and there was no social justice in their culture whatsoever. And they failed even with their kings, all of them, miserably. But look at here at Isaiah 33, 2. He says, for the Lord is our, what? The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. You see, that's the way it was always supposed to be. He says, okay, you want to try it on your own? Here you go. But here's the rules. And they couldn't even keep the rules. Then Jesus comes on the scene and says, look, I'm your judge. Remember, we learned during the ascension that all judgment was delegated to the son. I'm your lawgiver. I'm your king. And what does it go on to say? That he will save us. He will save us. We look for deliverance from people. My life will be better if I can get that job. Our country will be better if we can elect that person. Our world will be better if we could just do this. No. We're doing the same thing people have been doing for 7,000 years, and that's failing. We fail to love our neighbor. We fail to feed the poor. We fail to deliver those who are in sexual, sex trafficking. We fail, we fail, we fail because we're all very selfish people. But God alone is he the one that can save us. So the world that we live in is a mess. There's injustice everywhere. Today, if you're good, they'll call you evil. And then they point to something that's evil and they call it good. Lying is just normal. Not just politicians. Everybody seems to lie on a daily basis. It's just the norm. Sexual abuse on our planet is rampant. We are, we are, just, we are obsessed culture with it. It is a multi-billion dollar industry. And religious freedom is eroding rapidly. Right now in Canada, in Alberta, Canada, there's a pastor of a church very similar to ours who's in jail. He's been in, in jail for 45 days because he, he said, the Bible says we're supposed to assemble together and worship. And so we're going to get together and worship. And and the, we, they, we're doing right what we were doing here right now. And the Canadian government sent 200 police, padlocked the doors of the church, put three barbed wire fences around it. And the church up in Alberta, Canada, that church has gone underground. They are now meeting secretly in different locations while their pastor's in jail. That's Canada. We're not talking about Russia or China. We're talking about a few hundred miles north of here. Also, in Ohio, a, a family... And I don't know their, whether they're Christian or not. They had a daughter who was in elementary school. She went to school one day, and one of her female friends said, I identify as a boy. And she goes, well, I think I'll identify as a boy too. Just like young kids do. They're kind of stupid. They just go along with what their friends do. So she told all of her friends, start calling me this boy name. She told the teachers that. So for two weeks, the school, the teachers, the administration, are calling her by her new boy name. The parents found out about it, went to the school and said, no, no, we want her called by her given name. She's a female. This is her name. They called CPS. The daughter was taken away from their family. This is the United States of America happening. And again, I don't know if the family is Christian or not, but they're standing up for what they think is right. 
raising their child the way they want to raise, but because we are now obsessed with sexual identity, where sex is the biggest God on the planet now, not Jesus Christ, we are just like, that is the new rule of law. And I'm telling you, it's going to fall apart even faster as our world continues to crumble. But the biggest evil threatening your child isn't out there. The biggest thing threatening your child is inside here. Whether this world ever gets better or not, which again, we know it's not, not much better. Our biggest challenge is right here. We're, we're all, we can sit there and point to Alberta or Ohio or this abusive police officer or those group of people over there. But we've got evil that we need to deal with inside of ourselves. Jeremiah 17 says the heart, all of our hearts, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And yet you'll hear song after song after song saying, follow your heart. How about, how about that? That's why I don't sing. <laughs> you'll hear people tell children all the time, what do we want to be when you grow up? Well, you just follow your heart, honey. Your heart is deceitful. Your heart will lie to you. Your heart is sinful. You don't believe me? Remember when you were 15 and you thought he was the best, cutest guy ever? Yeah, we know how that went, right? Remember when you thought she hung the moon and was the greatest thing when she was going to make you happy? Remember when you thought you were in love with somebody and now they're like the biggest idiot in the world? What was going on there? Your heart. You were listening to your heart. The Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, we can look, at, look, and look out there on the newspaper and on the internet of what's wrong with our world, but the problem starts in the mirror. And until we address the person in the mirror, we're not going to see any change at all. We are all sinners. Jesus is the king. Matthew 27, 29 says, And plating or braiding a crown of thorns, and these weren't tiny little rose thorns. These were probably an inch and a half long. They put it on his head, and then a reed or a scepter in his right hand. And this is the Roman soldiers mocking him. And then they bowed the knee before him and they mocked him saying, Oh, hail, king of the Jews. And what they did not realize is they really were crowning the king of glory. He put a crown on his head, but it wasn't made of gold. He exalted to his throne on a cross. And he declared himself king of the world. But it was a kingdom not of this world. But that it was a kingdom of righteousness and of love and of peace and of power. And that we're going to do things differently. And he qualified himself as king. One of my favorite songs by the newsboys says, it says, amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? See, kingdoms of this world, they're like, oh, you die for the king. You die for your country. You die for the person on top. And here the person on top is dying for us. Just let that sink in. When we dabble in our sin and when we, we have our, our temper or our selfishness or all the things that we do, your king died for you to take all those things away. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated or showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ the king died for us. Is he the king of your life? Is he the savior of your soul? He's going to be your judge someday too. God is our lawgiver. God is our judge. God is our king. Would you bow your heads and pray with me today? I want to speak first of all to those who don't know Jesus. I'm not talking about are you religious. 
I'm not talking about have you been baptized. I'm not talking about are you trying to keep the Ten Commandments. I want to know, do you know Jesus? Do you know him personally? If you don't, you can today. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes or trusts in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You can be saved today. Would you pray a prayer like this to Jesus in your own heart with your own words? Something like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I try to change, but I can't. I want to make you the king of my life. I want you to be the savior of my soul. Thank you for forgiving all my sins as you bore them on the cross. I believe, Lord Jesus, that you died for me personally, that you buried all my sins in your grave, and that you rose again, literally, and that you're coming again. I believe that, Lord. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving my soul. I want to be a follower of you in Jesus' name. If you made that decision here today, I'd like for you to let me know. I want to help you with your next steps into following Jesus Christ. And we want to join you as Revolution Church to help you with that. This is my cell phone number. You can text me or call me anytime. So, hey, in just a few minutes, we're going to do question and answer session. Um, Man, we're really, again, glad to have so many of you here here for the first time. We want to hook you up with a t-shirt at the guest table, so be sure, fill out a connect card, let us know who you are and how you enjoyed this morning. Give that to them, and they'll give you a t-shirt. We've got several different ones to choose from. If you're not a first-time guest, but you still want a great t-shirt, $10 donation right there at the back table. Um, hey, give Chan- Chauncey a hand for wor- leading worship this morning. Uh, we're going to take them to lunch at Spring Creek Barbecue, not the one in Manville, but the one over there on 288 on the service road. And if you would like to join us on your dime, you can. So as many as want to can join us there. Speaking of Spring, uh, I said Spring Creek Barbecue. That is wrong. It's Bighorn. No, this is, we're doing better. Spring Creek's, eh. In fact, is that, that one closed? So, sorry. So everybody say Bighorn. Okay, so don't say I didn't tell you. Okay, speaking of Bighorn Barbecue... Um, there it is right next Sunday we have a newcomers luncheon if you're new to Revolution Church and you kind of want to find out what we're all about we want to take you to lunch we'll pay for your lunch you can bring the whole family and we're going to share with you the vision and the values of Revolution Church you'll get to meet some of our leaders you can ask questions and so if you're exploring whether or not this is the church for you this is a golden opportunity Um, another thing is um Sometimes starting now, over the next few weeks, I want to try to talk to every single person in Revolution Church, okay? So uh, text me and give me a time. Say, hey, you know, Wednesday afternoon is good for me or Friday morning. Just text me a time when you'd like to talk. I'd love to just find out what's going on in your life, with pray, pray with you. Ten minutes is all, all I need. If you want to talk longer, we certainly can. Um, I want to thank you all for being a giving church. You guys are doing great. You guys are so generous. We don't really have to talk about money here at all or in a world where right now they say one out of every five churches in the U.S. are talking about closing because of COVID because it's totally just destroyed their church, giving-wise and attendance-wise. And man, God has blessed us in that way, so, and it's all because you're being generous. And one of the things we talk about often here is missions, that we don't just want to see the gospel being presented here in Pearland, but we want to see it worldwide. You belong to God. He made you. You exist for Him. The unwasted life is the life that puts Christ on display as supremely valuable. A God-centered theology has to be a missionary theology. 
There are only three kinds of Christians when it comes to missions. Zealous goers, zealous senders, and disobedient. The reason we go is because we have the absolute confidence that the one in whose name we go has all authority, therefore nothing can stop him. The need of the nations who do not know the name of Jesus is an immeasurable need. It's an infinite need. 2.6 billion people live in unreached people groups. It seems to be woven into the very fabric of our consumer culture that we move toward comfort, toward security, toward ease, toward safety, away from stress, away from trouble, away from danger, and it ought to be exactly the opposite. You belong to God. He okay. So that's why we emphasize missions here at Revolution Church. Even when we were a tiny mission work ourselves, we're giving the missionaries to take the gospel around the world. So keep up the good job and keep giving to missions. Uh, we still need a few more helpers to help in our preschool and child care ministry. Um, my wife, Tammy, raise your hand, Tammy. So if you want to talk to her personally about when, if you just gave once a month or maybe once every two months, we could continue to expand our post-COVID uh, child care ministry. And speaking of COVID, we're going to continue to encourage masks. And uh, if you, But again, it's optional. Wash your hands, though. And if you're sick, definitely stay at home. And if you are attending in person this morning and find out this week you test positive, please let me know as soon as possible. And next week, we will not have in person. So we feel like that's the most responsible thing to do. But... Um, we want to continue to be careful. So life groups will be happening this week. You can text me to find out when and where. They've been having really good attendance on those. So let's do some question and answer now, okay? Um, let's see here. I need to get back where I have someone help me do this. That'd be awesome. Um, here we go. This is from someone watching online. How do we know which part of the Old Testament is still applicable to us? It's confusing to decipher between what is still relevant and what is old. That's very true. The example you provide about the Canadian church was the pastor arrested because they were assembling during COVID shutdown. Yes, he was. Uh, I'll answer that one first. But the, the shutdown, they, did, they shut down like the rest of the country, but the shutdown continued and continued and continued past any spikes. They just were being overreaching, and that's when they felt like they ought to obey God rather than men. Um, for example, they, he wrote a polite letter to, the elders of that church wrote a polite letter to the mayor and said, look, 80% of the people in our county are dying in nursing homes. The other 20%, almost all of them, have pre-existing conditions. You're asking healthy people not to go to church and obey God. And they're like, hey, it's been months and months and months. That we need to have an end to this. We're going to obey God rather than men. You can agree or disagree with that. But in America, we're supposed to have the freedom to assemble. Um, anyway, there's different opinions on that. But that's why I also quoted the Ohio situation, which is more egregious. But now back to your first question, which is excellent. How do you know which parts they're applicable? There's several guidelines, okay? Number one, like I teach you all the time, context is everything. When you're reading Deuteronomy, realize this is Moses speaking to the nation of Israel in the promised land. So there's definitely principles you can gather, but we don't expect that we're going to stone somebody for worshiping Buddha. We're not living under theocracy. So... Um, but there's principles there of God taking sin seriously. Another really good guideline is what if Jesus and or the apostles in the New Testament quoted it and reinforced it? 
It's interesting that Jesus and the apostles quoted every one of the Ten Commandments except for the Sabbath. Because why? Worship went from Saturday to Sunday. And so that was the only one. And that Jesus is now our Sabbath. And that we rest in him seven days a week. We worship on the first day of the week. So is there a New Testament reinforcement of it? Okay. For example, um, in Genesis, God created Adam and Eve in a garden. And the first marriage there. Jesus, quoting to the Pharisees, says, you don't have a right understanding of marriage. Because they were talking about divorce. He said, from the beginning, God created them male and female. And for this cause, a man, shall, man and woman shall leave their father and mother, and they too shall be one flesh. So Jesus reinforces the Old Testament definition of marriage. So people who say, oh, times have changed, marriage has changed. Jesus said, no, no, I'm still holding to the very beginning of what marriage is defined by. So those are some good guidelines for you um, on that. I probably could give a better answer if I had could study more about that. But anyway, um, here's a good question. How do you get a demon? Wow. So uh, Jesus talked about a man um, that wanted to clean up his house. He's using the house as a metaphor for his soul. And he says and he cleaned everything out. When he went away, he came back and there was seven demons worse than the first. One way you get a demon is if you try to clean up your own life without God's help. Okay, And the other ways are if you open your, yourself to the demonic by invitation of supernatural. Here's what I mean by that. Let's say that I really want uh, this job. And I know that I need supernatural help. But I say, I don't really want to talk to God. Is there anybody else out there? I've just invited the other supernatural forces of darkness out there. And the Bible clearly teaches that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. That's the levels of the demonic, and we wrestle against them, okay? So that's why we need to take up the armor of God, you know, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and we do warfare, and so we talk about that. Now, I don't want to go too far with that because some people blame the devil for everything. Like, oh, you got an addiction? Rebuke in Jesus' name. Boom, quick fix. It's not always that way. Sometimes it's a long process of God's grace to work your way out of that. So you are responsible. Like Luther says, your three enemies, as you see in the New Testament, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil's only one-third of your problem. You're the other one-third, and the world is one-third of your problem. You've got to fight the battle on all fronts. But when you open yourself up, so seriously, when you say, I want to know an answer to this question, and you do tarot cards, you're opening yourself up. You say, I want to do Ouija board, you're opening yourself up. And so there's people who started with that kind of stuff, and now they're troubled by demons and whatever. It's because they, rather than seeking a supernatural answer from God, they sought a supernatural answer from somewhere else. And they, open, they gave an open invitation. Um, what, are, what are we supposed to think about UFOs and the possibility that being said that by the military, that's true, and aliens may be already be here. Uh, it wasn't an April Fool's joke. Um, anyway, um, I don't know exactly what she might be referencing, but the Bible says in the last time there will be lying or deceitful signs and wonders in the heavens. Okay? Whether UFOs falls in that category or not, I don't know. The Bible does not say there is or is not life on other planets. I do find it interesting, though, that out of the millions and billions of planets, it's, they're still striking out zero, zero, zero. 
Um, again, if they do find life on another planet, that would be something that God created, and he has a separate plan for them than he does for us. We can't disregard his plan for us because of what might be going on out there. My best guess is, and this is my opinion, everybody say it's his opinion, is that there's not life anywhere else. That would be inconsistent with the overall theme of the Bible, that God has created this whole vast universe, and yet he focuses eyes on us. That's what's consistent. That what is man that you are mindful of him? But we're just a speck in the universe, and yet he dies for the speck? That's, that's just pretty amazing to me. That, to me, that would be consistent. But, again, keep in mind what Jesus says. In the last days, there'll be signs and wonders in the heavens, but they're deceptive. They're lying. Um, is it true that demons cannot inhabit those of us who are saved? Yes, I believe that's true um, because the Bible says that when we are saved, the Holy Spirit lives within us. And if the Holy Spirit's within us, he dispels anything else in us. And so I don't think the Holy Spirit would share our heart with a demon. Okay? Can, so we, a believer cannot be possessed, but a, a, demon, a believer can be oppressed. You can have a demon bother you, but he can't be inside you. And thankfully, what does 1 John say? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So great question there too. Um, here's another question. You said not to sue or take to court other Christians, but what about if anyone else is, does you wrong? If it, yeah, that's exactly it. If anybody else does you wrong, you can. In fact, Romans chapter 9 says, here's what God gave the, the authorities for. We're to obey them. They are to reward good and punish evil. So there's nothing unbiblical about taking someone to court who's not a believer, and so that's not a problem. And even then, taking a believer to court is like a last-ditch effort if you've expelled everything else and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, there's no problem. In fact, some people say, I, I really don't like this suit. If, you if you've been damaged, if you've been harmed, now it's not like a lawyer commercial. <laughs> um, call the hammer. No, just kidding. Um, no, if you legitimately have suffered wrong, you have every right to sue. That's what the laws are there for. Do not abuse it. I remember one time I got in a car accident with somebody. And it was my fault, but they were not hurt. They got out. They were cussing me up, one blue streak down another and all this stuff like that. Next thing you know, they show up in court with neck braces on and all this stuff, and, and they lost. But anyway, um, so if the universe goes on forever, is it still being made? Um, I'm not a scientist. I may play one on TV, but I'm not, I don't have a degree in science. So I would say that God spoke, past tense, spoke the worlds into the existence. Now, is the universe expanding? Yes, because when God spoke it in a world, it was like, Poof, you know, and I don't think that, that's not endorsing a big bang, but there was this sense, the reason they believe in a big bang and not God is because we know that, that the universe is expanding, but I don't think that means that new things are being created I think God past tense spoke to worlds in existence. But if God is, is creating other things, that's between God and himself. I don't, I don't know what God is not, what else God may be doing. All right. Um, here's another one. Uh, very powerful speech. How, how does sin corrupt us? Question mark. How does sin corrupt us? Okay, so there's two types of ways sin corrupts us. Number one, there is original sin that we've all inherited. It's in your DNA. Okay, you are born a sinner. As cute as your baby is, he or she is a baby sinner. Okay, and the reason that they don't kill you is they just don't know how yet. Okay, but when they scream at you in the middle of the night, like, ah, feed me. If they could kill you, they would. They're that selfish. Okay, so everybody is born a sinner. But then there's volitional sin. 
So there's original sin and volitional sin. Volitional sin is, yeah, I know that's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. And we choose it. It's not like, oh, I can't help myself, you know. We, we choose it. Um, so that's a good one. All right, we're doing okay on time. So one more question here. If someone gets called up for jury duty and us Christians are supposed to judge fairly, how do we spread out our opinions on others' juries? That's awesome. Okay, so I was actually on a murder jury years ago. And it was actually, I didn't live in Pearland at the time, but it was a Pearland case. And I could talk to you for about an hour about it. But it was interesting is myself and another guy were nominated to be the jury foreman. And he, he won the vote by one vote. And so he was the jury foreman. And so the, the judge writes out what's called the jury's charge. Here's what your job is. And it's spelled out very clearly, like in two paragraphs. That if you find this and this to be true, then you must find this also to be true. And what was happening right before my eyes was, the, 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 the charge was, would a reasonable and prudent person take this trash bag, if someone gave you a trash bag and said there's a baby and it go through in a dumpster, wouldn't a reasonable and prudent person open it and check and see if the baby was okay first? My opinion was yes. And everybody else's opinion, everybody else's opinion was, of course he should look. And, but then they all said, but if we say that, he's gone to jail and that's not fair. And I said, that's not your job. The law is, if you say yes, he has to go to jail. And everybody but three of us said, well, we don't want to do that. And I'm like, you're not doing what the judge told us to do. It was very disappointing. Anyway, uh, but we're supposed to do what the law says. And we can use our Christian values to discern what the, our interpretation of the law. All right, great, man, you guys... Did, um, okay, no, that's just a text, not a question. All right, hey, let's stand. The band's going to come back up. I should have already called you that. Um, let me just remind you uh, that we're going to lunch today. If you want to join us at Bighorn Barbecue, and then next week is the newcomer's luncheon. All right, let's stand and sing to the Lord.